All right, what I wanted to do this morning is, I'm not ready to let go of Christmas yet. I'm going to do a little more Christmas. How many of you grew up with the Charlie Brown Christmas? Because I grew up with the Charlie Brown Christmas, and that was such a great show. I remember as a kid watching it every year. And I always got to the point where Charlie Brown was so frustrated with Christmas and the commercialism and everything that went on, and he just wanted to know, what is the meaning of Christmas? Remember that great scene? And Lenny says, Charlie Brown, you want to know the meaning of Christmas? I'll tell you the meaning of Christmas. And he walks out, a little pin spot on him with his blanket, and he reads from Luke 2. You know? And it was a beautiful moment to remind us about the meaning of Christmas in terms of where it came from. What is the story that is told about Jesus' birth? But even so, we can read the story, but do we have the meaning? Is the meaning from the story coming out to us in a usable form? in a way that we can actually put into practice as soon as we walk out that door with the choices we make and the relationships we have. Because you can read a story, and just like we were talking about last week, you can read the story and still keep it at arm's length. You can read the story and keep it 2,000 years ago, hence, and it never really touches you. Or maybe it does in an emotional way, but then when you actually move out into your life, it's not there for you. And so this morning what I wanted to talk about is this meaning. What is the meaning of Christmas? A lot of people have tried to put it into words, and I gathered some quotes because they're kind of interesting. And the quotes seem to fall into three categories. The first category in terms of the meaning of Christmas was that the Christmas was an internal connection, kind of a soul connection or a spiritual connection. Roy L. Smith writes, He who has not Christmas in his heart will never find it under a tree. Like that. Janice Medetere writes, Christmas is not as much about opening our presents as opening our hearts. Same sort of idea, that internal connection. Norman Vincent Peale, y'all remember him? Christmas waves a magic wand over this world, and behold, everything is softer and more beautiful. Marjorie Holmes, it comes every year and will go on forever. And along with Christmas belong the keepsakes and the, out- and the customs those humble everyday things that a mother clings to and ponders like Mary in the secret places of her heart. And then there were some that talked about an external connection, a behavioral connection, a love and a service that is supposed to be going on in our lives. Bob Hope writes, My idea of Christmas, whether old-fashioned or modern, is very simple, loving others. Come to think of it, why do we have to wait for Christmas to do that? (laughs) Pope John Paul XXIII, mankind is a great and immense family. This is proved by what we feel in our hearts at Christmas. Eric Severide, you remember him, the great CBS correspondent? Christmas is a necessity. There has to be at least one day of the year to remind us that we're here for something else besides ourselves. As long as we know in our hearts what Christmas ought to be, Christmas is. Bing Crosby Unless we make Christmas an occasion to share our blessings, all the snow in Alaska won't make it white. I like that one. And Dale Evans, remember, wife of uh, Roy Rogers? Christmas, my child, is love in action. And one more, Ava Logue. Christmas, a Christmas candle is a lovely thing. It makes no noise at all, but softly gives itself away, while quite unselfish, it grows small. Love that metaphor. And then there was a third group that talked about Christmas as a recapturing of our childhood. 
the wonder and the magic and that deep sense of hope and anticipation that children exhibit at Christmas time. Robert Lind writes, Were I a philosopher, I should write a philosophy of toys, <laughs> showing that nothing else in life needs to be taken seriously and that Christmas Day in the company of children is one of the few occasions on which men become entirely alive. I love that one. Charlton Heston. My first copies of Treasure Island and Huckleberry Finn still have some blue spruce needles scattered in the pages. They smell of Christmas still. Joan Mills. Christmas is the keeping place for memories of our innocence. Larry Wilde. Never worry about the size of your Christmas tree. In the eyes of children, they're all 30 feet tall. Andy Rooney, I love this guy. One of the most glorious messes in the world is the mess created in the living room on Christmas Day. Don't clean it up too quickly. <clears throat> Richard Paul Evans, the smells of Christmas are the cr- smells of childhood. And finally, Joanne Woodward, the great actress. Which Christmas is the most vivid to me? It's always the next Christmas. See, what she's talking about is that hope, that anticipation. She's talking about that magic that we can feel at Christmas if we allow ourselves to. And if you think about it, really, that's what we're doing. Christmas is imprinted upon us when we're children, when that magic still exists, when we believe in Santa and fairies and everything that goes along with it. And it's like as we grow up, we move out of that place and we're always trying to recapture it. And somehow Christmas is that point in the year that connects us to our childhood and the memories and the smells and everything that childhood was and that sense of connection and wonder that we had and somehow lost. But if we let it, Christmas can start to bring us back into that place. We were talking about this in one of our group sessions last week and I asked what the meaning of Christmas was. And a lot of them, the, uh, I got a head going up and down, a lot of the answers were like, well, it's love, it's about peace, it's about connection. Of course it's about Jesus and about Jesus' birth. And then one young man said, it's about bringing hope to a dying world. I like that. Linus, when he was asked, of course, he just read Luke 2. Let's read that together so we'll get familiar and remember what it is we're talking about here. Starting at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord showed round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth 
peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away for them into heaven, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And then when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they had heard and wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So that's the story. We got the story. The question is, how is it meaningful to us here now? How is it helpful? How does it get us to where we want to go in life? How does it fill those empty places that we feel sometimes so keenly in life? You know, when it comes right down to it, it's amazing how little we really know about this story. There's only two of the four Gospels in all the New Testament that talks about Jesus' birth. That's Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew, we get the story of the Magi that we talked about earlier. Here, we get the story of Jesus' birth in a little bit more detail. Not a lot of detail, but I think just the right details. Just the right ones. You know, it's the details of a story that really make it come alive. Whenever you're reading a book, whenever you're watching a movie, it's those little details. It's as if knowing the details equals knowing the experience. It's the smallest ones that really make it. You like those movies that you see sometimes where someone doesn't know who they are and they ask them the tiniest little detail so that they can know that they are who they say they are? Or when you do a password and they ask you for your mother's maiden name and they ask you for the first pet that you had as a kid's name, they ask you for the name of your third grade teacher because those tiny details are the ones that prove your identity. Those are the ones that only you would know. And by divulging those kinds of details, we get a look into the deepest part of another person's life or experience. It makes it real. We can connect those details with the details of our lives. And it's not the big stuff. It's not the 30,000-foot level. It's not the big turning hinge points of history that we're really interested in. It's the tiniest little things that make a story come alive. These details, these tiny details, in as much of the story as we get in the New Testament, make the stories real. But we're not just supposed to read this story. We're supposed to go in another direction. If we just read it, we're going to miss something. We're going to miss what's really going on here. The details are not random. They're not just put there just you know, because they happened. They're there for a specific purpose. When you have so little space, every word is so important. Every detail needs to communicate something. So each one of these details is communicating an essential truth, an essential truth about this story about Jesus. The movie Gladiator was one of my favorite movies. I just love that movie. But the first scene, one of the first scenes, when we first meet the title character, he's preparing for battle and he's looking over the battlefield and he's all burly and he's got his armor and he's got this grim face. And he's about to leave and go do whatever he has to do and he catches sight of just a tiny little bird, a robin or something, sitting on a bush. And he just starts, he just stares at that bird and the smile creeps over his face. And the bird takes off and he follows it, you know, in flight, smiling. And then he turns back, the smile fades and he goes about his task. But in that tiny little detail, you get so much of his character, so much of who he is that will be revealed as the 
story goes on. A man of war, a warrior, a leader of men who also can notice a bird. He's got that kind of depth. He's got that kind of character within that normally wouldn't be seen. And that one little detail, if you're paying attention, tells you so much. And these little details that are given to us in this story are going to also tell us so much if we take a look, if we really do listen to what's going on. What are these details? The baby was wrapped in cloths. The baby was lying in a manger. There was no room for them at the inn. Tiny little details. What do they mean? What are they going to tell us? Well, let's start with the inn. Because every Christmas play has an inn and an innkeeper, right? Every Christmas play has the Motel 6 over there that the Holy Family is going to, and they get shut down at the door, and then they have to go find a stable someplace. Well, the interesting thing is, is that there were no Motel 6s in first century Judea. There were no holiday inns. There were no, there were no hotels or motels the way we think of them at all. There were no inns in the way that we think of them at all. There were what were called khans, khans in Aramaic. And what they really were were like truck stops or, or rest areas that you would ma- move along as you're going on the freeway, you know, or on the highway, cross country, and you have rest stops and you have truck stops and you can go and you can refuel and you can get food and you can take a shower, you can do these things. They had what were called khans, okay? And along the, uh, along the caravan routes, they had these rough shelters where people could stop, the caravans could stop. They had places for the, the, uh, the human beings and a place for the animals that was usually built around a well and there was a lodging place if you could afford it or at least there was an enclosure where you could be safe and you could rest from the journey. But that's not the word that's used here. And in fact, there is no archaeological evidence that there was any Khan in Bethlehem because it was so far off the trade routes, so far off the caravan routes, there would be no need for them there. And so this word is not the word that is being used here, which in Greek is kataluma, or in Aramaic is sherah. And a sherah would be mostly translated as a living space. So the first thing you have to do is try to picture a poor Judean home. And this is pretty easy for me because we've worked extensively uh, in Mexico, where people live pretty much like first century Judeans, where poor families and sometimes multiple families just had one room. That's all they had in, the, in their home, just one room. The floor was dirt, but in one corner, one side of the, of the room would be a raised platform that took them off of the dirt and ha- gave them some kind of wooden or other type of surface. And that was their shedah. That was their living space. That's where they ate. That's where they sat and talked. That was the place where they hung out. On the dirt floor is where they cooked, where all the mess was. And that's where the animals were as well. And it's like, they brought their animals inside? What in the world? And we're talking about domestic animals here. We're talking about oxen. We're talking about uh, sheep and goats and chickens. But in a subsistence culture for these people, those animals were their livelihood. Those animals were their subsistence. They were their survival. And so you weren't going to leave them outside where they could get too cold or where they could get stolen. At least at night, you always had to bring them inside where they could be warm, where they could be fed, And the dirt floor was a perfect place to do that. So now start to imagine the scene here. Start to imagine the smell here. (laughs) You've got one or more families living in one room. They're cooking there. The smoke's going up from the fires of the the kitchen. The smoke's going up from the oil lamps, all right? 
and the animals are doing what animals do, and they're all there as well, and everybody's creating heat, so it's going to be warm in there. And uh, this was life in the first century, okay? All in one room like this. Now, if you had a wealthier home, it was different. In wealthier homes, there were multiple rooms, and usually there was a second floor. The second floor was the sherah, was the kataluma, okay, the living space. And that's where the sleeping occurred, and that's where the sitting and, and the talking and all the living space and the relaxing. What sherah literally means is to loosen, to relax. It's like just coming home and you just take off you know, all the stuff and you just relax. That's literally what it means, but it was that kind of living space. The first floor... It was where the kitchen was and the dining room was and the public spaces were. And usually they were built around a courtyard, so you had a courtyard as well. But the same thing had to happen. The animals had to be brought in at night. So either they were stabled in the courtyard or they had an actual place, a stable for them. Often these houses were built into the sides of hills. And so a cave was actually dug out of the hill at one of the far walls. And that became the stable for the animals. But either way, you know, you're starting to get the, the idea of the layout here. Now, when you think about the way families worked in the first century, most of the marriages were arranged marriages. And these were in a small town like Bethlehem. What that meant was is everybody's pretty much related to everybody else. Cousins were marrying cousins. And so the families were all interconnected and intertwined. And the daughter-in-laws always went to live with uh, father of the groom, and so families connected that way as well. And so you had this interconnection. Joseph was from the lineage of David. His ancestral home was Bethlehem. So when this decree goes out, what he's literally doing, he's going back to the house of his family, the house of his ancestry. And he's going to stay with a relative because that's what people did. And was probably a relative with one of the wealthier houses because the word here used is the kataluma, this, this shera. So the house was wealthy enough to actually have a guest room. That word is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 22 and, and Mark where he says, go find the guest room where we can rent in order to have our supper, our Passover supper, right before the crucifixion. Same word there. He's telling them, go find a house that can rent out their guest room for us. And Eastern hospitality, the way it was, you know, people were obliged, if they had enough money, to have this guest room to bring people in. But Joseph comes in, and everybody's overwhelmed. Everybody is coming to Bethlehem for this decree, for this census. And there is no room in that guest room. There's no room in that shara, in that living space. And so what they need to do is they need to go stay where the animals stay, because that's the only place they can go. But you know what? Even though it's smelly, at least it's warm, and it's private. Because the other thing about the guest room would have been if there were multiple families staying there, they're all just together. Maybe they drop a curtain you know, to give a little bit of, of separation between the families, but they're all together in the same room as well. And so by moving off into the area for the animals, they had some privacy. And this is where she gives birth. And of course, the manger is the perfect place to be able to put the child once the child is born. And what about these swaddling clothes? What that's all about? Hebrew infants, once they were born, the first thing, of course, they would do is cut the cord, as we normally do. And perhaps Mary had to do this herself. It doesn't sound like she had a midwife there, anyone to help her. Maybe one of the women came down and helped her. But at any rate, the cord is cut, the baby is washed in, in water, and then rubbed in salt. Imagine that. You know, I'm not sure that they knew why salt worked. 
but salt is an antibacterial you know, disinfectant. And so they would rub the baby with salt and then wrap him up tightly, okay, in just bands of cloth, just rough, you know, shreds and bands of cloth, which were called the swaddling, and very, very tightly. Those of you who had, had babies before, you know that's what they still do in the hospital, right? You know, whenever I saw my child, he was the burrito baby because they just wrapped him up really tight and the only thing was his little head sticking out and then they put the cap over that, remember? You know, ancient Hebrews did the same thing. Just wrapped the baby up really tight, gave him the sense they were back in the womb, gave him the sense of comfort and also kept them from being able to hurt themselves. And so all of these details are pointing to that this, in the eyes of everybody around them, was a very normal family. They were treated like a normal family. Nobody made room for them when they showed up. It was like, oh, okay, you know, Joseph and Mary are here. Let's make room for them. No, go stay with the animals, you know. And the way that Jesus was treated after he was born was just like any other Hebrew child, you know. He was wrapped in the swaddling clothes, and then he was laid in the manger because that's all they really had to work with. And so these details are showing us that Jesus' essential character was one of humility. He was unassuming. He didn't call attention to himself. He willingly let go of power. And this is the character that we see. It's just like that scene where the gladiator sees the bird in the very beginning of Jesus' life. This detail, that there was no room at the inn, that he was wrapped like any other baby, and then he was laid in a manger with the animals, is a precursor to the rest of his life. If you think about Jesus' entire life, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He's always telling people that if you want to be at the head of the table, sit at the foot. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. He lived this stuff. That's why the people said that he taught with such authority, because they could see it in action in his life. And it begins right there, right at his birth, right at the manger. No one would have given him a second glance. As a child, growing up, he looked like every other child. And see, this calls so much more attention to the genius of the Magi and the genius of the shepherds as well. Yes, the Magi were looking for years, possibly generations, for the king to be born, to fulfill the prophecies that they knew about, watching the heavens and watching the turning of the stars, to find that moment when the signal came for them to move out across no man's land, the area between the empires, between the Parthians and the Romans, dangerous territory, to get to Judea, to ask where this king was born. But what prepared them for what they actually found? What prepared them to find in abject poverty a child that was living under certain conditions that we would never take a second look at? What did they they expect when they were looking for a king of the Jews that was foretold by the stars? And what did they find? And yet, something in them prepared them to see with spiritual eyes what physical eyes would miss. And they saw here the king that they were searching for, and they unloaded all of their gifts. Jesus wept over Jerusalem in the week before he died on the cross because the Jews did not recognize the hour of their visitation. Do you remember that one? God was with them. God came among them and they moved right on by. The Magi did not miss the hour of their visitation. Herod did, certainly. A lot of the authorities did, but not the Magi and not the shepherds. 
the shepherds also were able to see what was right in front of them. Are we able to see? This is where the details start to speak to us. Are we prepared to see a God that is an unassuming God? What is the image you have of your God? Sitting on a throne way up high someplace with all the angels around? Certainly that imagery is there in the Bible. But if Jesus is right, and what Jesus is telling us is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and in Jesus we see an unassuming boy lying in a manger. We see an itinerant teacher who can't be distinguished from the people around him. The authorities have to hire someone to point him out when they want to kill him, right? He's someone that we would probably walk on by if we aren't prepared the way the Magi and the shepherds were prepared to accept something deeper than what hits us at first glance. Are we prepared to see God with us, Emmanuel, in every single detail of our lives, no matter how insignificant it seems, no matter how boring or mundane it seems? Are we prepared to look beyond that surface and see the presence of our God with us right here and right now? If we're not, then we're going to walk right on by. And Jesus says, this is the stuff of kingdom. This is what kingdom is. It's people like children, like servants, who lower their perspective, who move into that unassuming place and can see. You know, if a child loses something of yours and you're looking all over the house for it, you know how you're going to find it? You've got to drop down and put your head about two and a half feet off the ground and look there and see where all the little hiding places are that you'll miss from five or six feet up. And I think that's what Jesus is telling us. You want to see kingdom? Then drop your perspective down and see it the way your Father in heaven sees it. We think God is up, but God is right here. You know, He's lowered His perspective. He is the humble, unassuming God, the servant God, and it just blows our minds to think of Him that way. But if we haven't, we'll miss the point. You know, who is this God? A couple of Christmases ago, I had an experience right here on this intersection here where the light goes on forever and ever. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you'll seem like you'll sit there for 10 minutes waiting for the light to change. One night I was coming in for one of our dues and it was right before Christmas and I wrote a little, um, just a journal entry about it and I wanted to read it to you because I think it's germane to what we're talking about. Five nights ago, waiting at a stoplight, I have a front row seat at the crosswalk. Through the passenger window, I catch what must be father and daughter beginning their walk across the intersection, moving very slowly. I wonder if they'll get across in time. Both carry cardboard coffee cups in their right hands. But while his free arm swings with each step, I notice hers held stiffly, bent against her side. She appears 11 or 12 years old as I collect details, left hand curled cruelly back at the wrist, left foot turned sharply inward, and the limping shuffle it creates thick glasses and puffy features. It dawns why they move so slowly across my glass screen. Father matches her pace with practiced grace, unhurried, vaguely protective, but not hovering either. They went to Starbucks. He bought her coffee or maybe hot chocolate amid all those lights and decorations. I wondered how it all appeared to her through those thick glasses. I wondered how it all appeared to him to be forced to walk slowly to match that slow, shuffling pace for 11 or 12 years, for the rest of her life, for the rest of his? Perhaps to learn to see life as his daughters would always see it? 
a tragedy, a very great blessing, a blessing none of us would ever choose, but when chosen for us, immense if accepted. Christmas has a way of bringing vague, submerged things to the surface, the way hook and line bring up fish. We find ourselves suddenly grasping, squirming emotions that should have nothing to do with Christmas, with what we think Christmas is supposed to mean, what we remember it used to mean. You see, we imprint the meaning of Christmas through a child's eyes, then mourn its loss each year through adult eyes. Christmas hasn't changed. The possibility of Christmas returns every December. We have changed. We've lost the pace of childhood. I'm thinking maybe Christmas as remembered happens exactly when we stop trying to make it happen. When we stop running faster and faster, trying to catch the stored experience of childhood, new experience and meaning finally has a chance to catch up and catch us. My house will wake soon. The phone will ring. This quiet moment will pass, is passing, like the eye of a storm. I can't choose the pace of life around me any more than I can alter the course of a storm. But maybe I can choose my own pace. Maybe I can allow myself to shuffle slowly through the crosswalk with a warm cardboard cup in my hand and the sense of a patient father at my side. See, the father wasn't ashamed of his daughter, wasn't ashamed of the girl. And that girl was nothing to the world. A Down syndrome child is passed over, always off on the sidelines on the margins of life. But she meant everything to him. What's the meaning of these sorts of details? What really is the meaning of Christmas? If Christmas really is love, if it really is peace, if it really is connection, if it really is hope for a dying world, how do we achieve that? How do we really make it happen? The only way we can do it is to enter the story ourselves, to graduate beyond just reading it and actually move into it. I want to read you one more story. And I read this almost every year, but I never get tired of it. Kind of like when you go to a restaurant and you have your favorite thing and you order it every time. It's like that. This is called Trouble at the Inn. See how it connects. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up, He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally was asked to play ball with them. Most often they'd find him a way to keep him off the field, but Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boy chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, can't they play? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year. But the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. 
After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, <laughs> and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yuletide extravaganza of the staffs and the creches of beards and crowns and halos and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then came the time when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead, but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we've asked everywhere in vain. We've traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you, Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She's heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She's so tired. Now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone said the prompter, whispering from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically. Be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon his shoulder. And the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. Don't go, Joseph. <laughs> Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. <laughs> Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. Can we get lost in a story like that? Can we lose ourselves in a story like that where all the things that seem so important are just not important anymore and we see for the first time in the tiny details everything that really, really matters in life? Can we become as simple and unassuming as Wally, as a Down syndrome child walking along a crosswalk with her father, as Jesus himself lying in a manger? Can we do that? Can we lower our perspective can we get to a place where we can just be so vulnerable and dependent and yet aware of the Father's love and concern that we know that we know that we are cared for? If we can do that, then we can begin to know the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christmas. For all that it means traditionally, culturally, for all that it's been handed down to us, all the beautiful things that are our cues to move into this state of mind, the lights and the trees and the gifts and the cooking and the baking. But beneath all that, 
Help us not just on Christmas Day, but every day to see in the details exactly what we need each moment to find you in the midst. Exactly what we need to be able to base our choices and our relationships on something that is not clearly seen, but is so clearly known and felt in you. Father, thank you for loving us the way that you do in every day, that you never leave us or forsake us. Help us to remember we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.